0: God is a good God, isn't He? Yes, He is. God is faithful. Yes. He is. God is loving. Yes. We've been reading through the Book of Romans uh, since November when we started. I hope that's been a real blessing to everyone. I hope you've really enjoyed it. There's a lot in the Book of Romans for us, and I hope that God has been speaking to you um, over the last few months. I'd like to speak from Romans chapter eight this morning. So, if you want to turn to that with me. And hopefully I'll stop being so booming in a minute. So if you turn turn to Romans chapter 8, this is often one of people's favorite chapters in the book of Romans, which is one of people's favorite books in the Bible often. So this is kind of uh, one of the places which I expect lots of people are in quite often. And I'd like to take us to a verse this morning, um, which is probably one of the most well-known of this well-known chapter. Uh, it's verse 28 so when you get there you'll know it well for some of us you'll know it as soon as I said the word 28 Romans eight twenty-eight. this is one of the greatest statements in the word of God they're all great but this one it's one of those verses it's one of those great truths that's in the word of God that are the foundation for your life and for my life. And this morning I want it to to become more so. I have a real burden this morning that the Spirit will take this truth and embed it right into your heart this morning, into the foundation of your life. That this truth can be like a peg or a pin that's punched into the rock that is Christ. That you hang on to this no matter what happens in your life, both now and in the future, that if you're hanging on to this truth, then nothing will shake you. It's a well-known verse, but I'm not sure it's a well-understood verse. And that might sound like a strange thing to say, because you may feel that you understand it perfectly well. Uh, I always find that I understand the scripture perfectly well until the Holy Spirit shows me that there's actually lots more that I haven't understood about it. And that's the wonderful thing about God's ongoing revelation. Um, For all of us to make a quantum shift, we've talked about it a lot in the last few months, for us to make a quantum shift, there needs to be a seismic change in each one of us. That's That's not the first time we've said that, and we'll keep saying it because it's so important. For everything that God said he's going to do, and everything that's come through the prophetic word to us as a body of people, it requires every single member of the body to be mobilized. There can be no passengers there can be no one fulfilling their potential and that's what god wants for you is that everything he's put within you is being used to your full potential the challenge for us when we come to this verse and i'm going to read it in a second is interpretation and what i'm not seeking to do this morning is to put my interpretation on this verse there are lots of different ways to read this verse and at different times the holy spirit will say different things to you from this verse but I want to get us to consider some of the things that are within the words, shall we say, maybe between the lines this morning. So, verse 28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? All things work together for good. Sometimes the challenge for us in coming to this verse is, and this might sound a bit counterintuitive to say it, but sometimes we have us at the center of that verse. In other words, the verse becomes about me. And there are some translations of the Bible that will kind of tilt us in that direction, like the NIV, which is one of my favorite translations, the NLT, they both say, for the good of those who love him for the good of those who love him or love God. Sometimes the songs we sing will tilt us in that direction as well because they, there's a song that we sing regularly which says, all things work together for my good. All things work together for my good. Now we have to be careful because the society in which we live is a me oriented age. It's an age that's increasingly becoming orientated around you as an individual. Your choices... Your preferences, your opinions, and life is increasingly being divided up and compartmentalized so that you can filter out the things you don't like, and the voices you don't like, the opinions you don't like, the choices and options that you don't want, and just have the things that suit you, so you can form your own little world with you right at the center of it, a happy little bunny, with all of your choices and all of your boxes ticked. How many of you know that the kingdom of God is completely the opposite to that? We are never at the centre. It's always Christ at the centre. When we sing songs like that, it's fine. We're just trying to personalise it. We're just trying to make it about us and make it our own, and that's absolutely fine. But we have to be sure that we understand that we are not at the centre of this, as when we go through it, you will start to see... When we started Romans, there were three themes I said that we wanted to pick up. And that was identity, purpose, and destiny. These are three recurring three themes throughout the book of Romans. And one of those, purpose, is what we're here for. It's a question that we should be asking ourselves. What am I here for? And we are here ultimately to bring glory to God. We were created and made and designed and destined to bring glory to our creator which means that the gospel we carry must be a glory centered gospel yeah. it must be not about being rescued but being restored yeah. it's not just about being rescued from the gutter it's about being restored to our place as God's children as royalty being robed in royal robes yeah. that's a glory centered gospel And that has God's purposes in mind rather than giving people a gospel that just says, hey, you're not happy with everything in your life? I've got this gospel and it makes everything great for you. That's not the gospel that we carry. It's something bigger than that. When we bring the gospel, we're not just holding out hope of rescue. We're holding out hope of restoration of all things, of being part of something that will change the whole fabric of the universe. How massive is that? So when people come into this gospel, they need to be caught up in something that is much, much bigger than themselves. And that's what we've been caught up in, something much, much bigger than us and our lives. We also face the opposite challenge when we come to this verse. The opposite challenge is fatalism. We can look at this verse and say, well, look, God works all things together for good, so does it really matter what I do? God's got it all in hand anyway. Some people will say, well, you know, what will be will be. Does it really matter? Yes, it really matters. And that can lead to complacency. Because we can just assume that God controls everything because he is omnipotent. And that means that what we do doesn't matter because God will just have his way anyway. So both those extremes, if you like, are not good for us. And the other challenge I think we face is, is this word good? What does good really mean? Does it mean my good? Does it mean your good? Because your good and my good may not be the same thing. Does it mean the common good? Does it mean what's good in the opinion of most people in this room? And if so, Does it mean what we think is good now or what we think is good in a year's time? What's good for us now may not be good for us later. So you see, good can shift around when we start to define what good is. So we need to explore in the scriptures, what does good really mean? We're going to touch on these three themes this morning that I mentioned. Identity, purpose, destiny as we go through this, because all of these come into play. And what I'd like to do is is break this verse down for us into four parts. Andrew said line by line, precept by precept. We're going to do it word by word this morning. We're going to break it down into four parts, because there's so much for us in this one verse that we need to dissect it a little bit and then put it back together. Does that sound good? Good. So we're going to start with the first two words, which are, we know, we know. That's quite an emphatic statement, isn't it? <coughs> Have you considered that? We know. My question to you is, do we? More importantly, do you? Do you know? I'm pausing there because it's, it's not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you, do you know? Yes. So I want you to think about it. Yes. Do you know? Yes. Do you know that this truth of Scripture is true? What's interesting is when you're trying to understand a verse, always go to the context of it because generally we'll have a lot of the answers we need within the context. And if we just go back a couple of verses to verse 26, (coughs) Paul starts to talk about how the Spirit helps us. And he says this, Likewise, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words, which most people interpret as as speaking in tongues. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now what's interesting here is Paul has just said, we don't know something didn't he? He said, we don't know. Sometimes we don't know what God's will is in a situation. And we have to pray and let the Spirit intercede in our hearts to discern what that is and to pray into situations. So Paul is happy for us not to know some things. But then we come to something that he says, now this you need to know. Do you see the importance of knowing it? We're not talking about knowing it up here, but we're talking about knowing it In here. As those of us that are born of the Spirit, when we talk about knowing something, we're never just talking about this. It's easy to know stuff. It's a lot harder to know stuff in here. And that's what Paul's talking about. We have to be careful that we don't assume of one another that we know. When we're talking to one another, when we're helping to one another, we have to be careful not to assume that our brother and sister in Christ really knows this. Because they may not really know this. It may be something that they thought they knew until trouble came, and then they realized they didn't know it at all. That they just hoped it was true. That someone else told them it was true, and they just believed what someone else had told them until they had that tested in their life. So we can ask each other, do we know? And we can encourage each other with what we know. And that's why Paul says, and we know. I want to encourage you, we know this. We as the body of Christ know this. You as an individual may not know this yet, but you will. And that's the prayer of Paul for us today. If we're to help each other to grow and mature, then we need to ask those sorts of questions of each other. It's not rude and intrusive. It's just a real relationship as we draw close to one another and we want to help each other. And the context helps us here. Verses 26 and 27 that we've just read. Paul talks about the Spirit coming within us. You know what I see there is a closeness between the believer and the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is within your heart and that you're full of the Spirit. When you're full of the Spirit, you will come to the place where you know. So if you're not sure that you know, here's the answer for you. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Let him fill you until you think you're literally going to burst. And at that point, you will know. Because his confidence is within you. He knows. And his thoughts fill your thoughts. And that's how you know. You don't know by thinking about it really hard, wanting it to be true. You know by being full of the Holy Spirit. And he reveals it to you as the truth of Almighty God. I want to read this little quote from one of my favorite authors. I've been reading a lot of this guy recently. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a 20th century evangelist and a fantastic writer. He says this. So this is about the context of what we're reading. He says, Such fellowship with God creates the assurance of the saints that the whole process of our lives is moving toward a consummation. We know, wrote the apostle, Here is no indefiniteness, no speculation, no expression of a hope that faints or falters. Upon the basis of the profound and magnificent arguments of the divine method of redemption, the apostle founds a confidence that nothing is equal to shaking. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Would you like to have a confidence that nothing is equal to shaking? Because that's what God has for you today. Yeah. To have that confidence and to know in your heart. And here's something else that you will know. Is that circumstances, other people, doubts, fears, will all come against you to challenge that which you think you know. That you can be guaranteed. That you will always face circumstances that tell you the opposite of what this verse is telling you, of what this truth of Scripture is telling you. It happened to Abraham. The promise came to him, but his circumstances screamed the opposite at him. My body is as good as dead, and my 90-year-old wife is barren. There's two truths I cannot get away from that are counteracting the truth, the promise that God has given me. And in the face of those, he chose to believe God. And it says earlier in Romans chapter 4, it talks about Abraham's face and knowing that God was a God who could bring life from death and could call into things, things into being that did not exist. Abraham knew that, and that trumped those other truths, those other facts in his life. And we need to know this, and it will trump all other facts in your life and things about you. And then it becomes your anchor, your anchor point into God himself. That's the importance and centrality of this truth. And that is why the apostle says to us, we know. We must know. We have to know. If we don't know, we ain't going to make it. But the good news is the spirit is within you and he will reveal it to you so that you can say, I know. I know that I know that I know. And then he goes on to say this. The second thing is, he talks about those who love him. And next slide up, please. For those who are called according to his purpose. Back into verse 28. So we know that for those who love God, and then later on he says, for those called according to his purpose. So Paul is linking those two things together. It's two sides of a coin. Those who are called by God, they love him. How do they love him? Because their lives are the fruit of of that love. Jesus said this is how you will be known by your fruit. If you love me, the fruit of that will be in your life. If you're called to be in the kingdom of God, the fruit of that will be evident in your life. So we have to be really careful here because when we come to this verse, we have to not neglect the second half of the verse. Now how many of you have quoted half a verse before or remembered half a verse? I'm going to put my hand up first. I know there's more of you here. We kind of remember the bits we like to remember, don't we? Now, there's one that really winds me up, and sometimes I'll turn to Rich when we're worshiping. There's a song that we sing, and it talks of it draws from a scripture in Revelation 11 about how the saints overcame. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and then we stop singing. We go on to another line, because the third line is because they love not their lives to the death. Who likes that bit? <laughs> I'm all about the blood and the word, but I'm not sure about that bit. But all of those three things are necessary to be victorious over the enemy. So we have to be really careful when we come to this that we say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Stop? No. Comma. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now we get to the root of it. It's the purpose of God. We start to define what this means. By saying it's linked to God's purposes in your life. It doesn't mean that God is just here to do nice things to you all the time. It means that God is here to do things, and it's for the good. The Greek doesn't actually say, your good. It just says, the good. And we personalize that, to say, you're good. Because the good, as far as God's concerned, is also your good, as God defines it. but this is about those who are called. This verse is not about everyone in this world. It's about you, but it's not about those who are not called. It's not about those who are not in the kingdom of God. In other words, all things don't work out for everybody. All things work out for those who are in the kingdom of God because all things are linked to God's purposes. And the only people on the right side of those purposes are those who are in the kingdom of God. So this verse relates to believers and not to unbelievers. It's about God's purpose in our lives. It's linked to God's eternal purpose and plan. And really, it's about how your life fits into that glorious eternal purpose and plan. And I want to talk a bit more about that as we go through. The really important thing to say this is, if you try to understand your life now, outside of God's eternal purpose and plan, it will not make sense. This is really important for us. If you try to understand the things that happen in your life because you are called by God, if you do that independently of God's great purpose and plan, it will not make sense. You are missing the context for your life. The context has always been God's kingdom because before you were born, God called you. Before he created the foundations of the earth, he called you by name. So the whole of your life, even leading up to the point where you made your decision for Christ, the context was God's eternal purpose and plan. All the things in your life that you look back on need to be interpreted in the context of God's eternal purpose and plan. And if you try to do it any other way, it will be a mystery, it will be confusing, It leads to disappointment. It's hurtful. And sometimes it just leads us to be angry about the things that happen in our life. I know that a lot of people struggle with that. This can set us free from all of that. Just seeing God's eternal purposes and how your life has been fit into it. Paul goes on then to to define what that eternal purpose is in a nutshell. In the next verse he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The purpose of God, God's great eternal purpose, is fulfilled, is worked out in you becoming conformed to the image of the Son of God. He lives within you, and he is molding and shaping you And everything in your life is working towards that end and purpose. All God's eternal purpose is wrapped up in that one process. God has invested a lot into us, hasn't he? I know that's probably the biggest understatement you've ever heard in your life. I don't think I could state how much God has invested into us. Because, you know, I don't think we have any idea. I think we've just glimpsed. The cost for God of Jesus being on the cross I think we've glimpsed that I don't think we've really understood the pain that God went through to bring you and me back, to, back home but the spirit will show you if you ask him bit by bit at a level and a rate at which you can cope with because if he revealed it to you in one go We couldn't cope with it, because it's so enormous. So our purpose here is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. When we started in Romans, we started in Romans 1, and we talked about, in verse 20, it talks about everything that God made. The purpose of it was to reveal and to reflect his divine power, his eternal power, and his divine nature. That God made creation, the purpose of which was to reveal his eternal power and his divine nature. That we're to act as a mirror to God, to reflect back to him what he looks like. That we act like him, that we look like him. We're not here to be robots or automatons, otherwise God never would have given us free will. We're here to be as individuals reflecting something different of the nature of God. You see, the nature of God is so huge and limitless that one single person couldn't reflect one single human that isn't God couldn't reflect the full nature of God. So that means God has called all of us together, billions of us together, to reflect different aspects of his nature all of us being different from one another, all of us having a variety within us. But when put together, we start to resemble our creator God and reflect the beauty of who he is. You need to know that you're called into the kingdom of God. To understand, truly understand what Paul is saying to you here, you need to know that you are called into the kingdom of God and that the gift and call of God are irrevocable ...in your life. That nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ... ...as then Paul goes on to tell us. If you don't know that... ...then I would suggest to you... ...that other things in your life... ...will be the driver. Other things will start to drive... ...your life forward. You'll be dragged along... ...by the cares of this world. But when you know that you're called then you will be, I don't want to say dragged along, but sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> there's a great cartoon, you know the cartoon called um, Footprints in the Sand, have you seen that? There's a little extension I've seen. to that. In the, in the cartoon there's sort of um, someone that's walking along the beach and then they look back and there's only one set of footprints and they question um, where was God because there used to be two sets of footprints. And then God says, no, they were my footprints, I was carrying you. There's another little extension to that story, which is then there's sort of some draggy lines along uh, the, the sand, and, that says, and that's where I had to beat you over the head and drag you. <laughs> Sometimes it is that way. But, brothers and sisters, we need to know that heaven would call on our lives so that nothing else will drive us except knowing that we're called, that we're here for purpose, and that we have a heavenly destiny. Let's just go on to the next slide, because the next thing he says is, all things. All things. Now, I'm pretty sure this isn't a biblical gift, but sometimes my wife attributes to me the gift of stating the obvious. I excel in it, and I'd like to exercise it right now. Paul said, all things. All things. All things work together. There's nothing in your life that's not included in that think of something where you think God was not in that think of something where you say how can God be in that all things the scripture says all things there's nothing in your life that God will not and has not used to have his purposes in you And the danger that we sometimes encounter is looking at our lives as a series of disconnected events. We look at things in isolation and sometimes we focus and we obsess on things in isolation so we can't get past those things. It's like, I'm happy with all this and then there's this blip. What happened there, God? And we have those questions for God. Those are the things that hold us back, folks. Those are the things that the enemy uses to tempt you to believe that God isn't faithful or that God just was forgetful for a season and left you to your own devices or left you to the whims of your enemies. And that's just a lie. God was working in you. You see, God has given us free will and we make our own choices, we know that. But God has an amazing ability to draw everything in your life Towards a conclusion. It's like a threads of a tapestry that are woven together. And sometimes those threads seem to be running in opposite directions to each other, such that you wonder what the threads going the other way are really doing. But God has a way of drawing all those threads together. And as He draws them all together, He starts to weave a picture like a tapestry in your life. And He can see that big picture. But you can't yet. But he's weaving. He's constantly bringing together these loose strands. These different events that happen that seem disconnected or seem to not add anything to you. But God says, they are. I'm using them. And you need to trust me. And that picture that he's weaving in your life that will one day be complete, he's actually weaving into a much bigger picture of all of our lives that you necessarily can't see. But he sees it. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he said, the church is the revelation of my manifold wisdom. And it means much variety. It was used of a a painting or a a cloth that had multiple colors in it. And that's what the church is. That's what we are as a body of Christ. And that's what God is doing with your life. He's weaving together something that will be beautiful And he's weaving that into a bigger picture, which is even more beautiful and glorious, because it reflects his nature and his eternal power. So we must be careful to think that certain events in our lives are not part of that tapestry. And we must also be careful to not assume that God is not concerned with those individual events. God is not just the big picture guy, and I don't really care about the detail, so if you didn't like that bit, I'm not bothered. He's interested in the intricacies of your life. There's nothing that happens in your life that he's not aware of. Jesus said he knows the number of hairs on your head. You know, as I get older, my my hairline is receding. So I'm kind of thinking it's getting easier for, for God to know how many hairs there are on my head. But maybe it's changing on a daily basis. But he knows how many hairs are on my head. Who in this room knows how many hairs are on their own head? Anyone? That wasn't rhetorical. Some, some people might count, I don't know. It might be a losing battle and you're just sort of keeping a tally. That means that he knows you better than you do. That's just a picture of how he knows you more fundamentally on the inside. But he knows you better than you. So we can never say that he's not interested in the detail of your life. Do you know our God is cosmic? He's bigger than the whole cosmos, which exists within him. He created it within his own being, the cosmos. And yet he's also in the intricate detail of it as well. He's bigger than everything, and in some respects, he's kind of smaller than everything. You know, the scripture that William read this morning was from Colossians 1, where it talks about all things being held together in Christ. And it literally means being held together, that without him, we would fall apart. And when God created the universe, it says that he made all things through the sun. That the sun was the pattern he used. And that somehow Jesus is embedded in the DNA of all creation, of the cosmos. You know when they go searching for the God particle? I know him. If you drill down all life and matter to the smallest amount, you'll find Christ. If you go to the furthest reaches of the universe, the edges of the known cosmos, Christ is bigger than all that. He, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And you know, sometimes we think about that purely in time, that he came before all things and he will come after all things, that all things are bookended by Christ. But it also means he's bigger than all things and he's in the intricacy of all things. And that's how interested he is in your life. Everything that happens in your life, He's aware of it and He's working it together for good according to the purpose He has for your life. You know, in this world, before you know God, you look for patterns in life. We don't look for patterns as God's people, we see purpose. We don't see patterns out there, random patterns. We see purpose. There's purpose in everything, and it's God's purpose nothing is meaningless in our lives nothing is meaningless in your life there's nothing that happens in your life that is meaningless and nothing is ever wasted in your life there's nothing that's happened to you that God will waste why? all things when Paul said all things he really meant all things it didn't mean most things or the stuff you liked or the stuff that, where it seemed to be that God was working in it he really meant all things and we have to come to a place where we trust him that everything he that's happened to us and everything that will happen to us will work together towards that purpose it gives us a clearer picture of god's purpose and it means that our lives become more purpose driven you know the lord doesn't promise us a comfy ride when you came into the kingdom i hope no one promised you a comfy ride because it ain't going to happen What you got promised was a destination. And the destination isn't just to be in heaven one day, just to sit tight and wait. The destination is the fullness of God in you. That's the destination. That's what he promised. And sometimes, a lot of the time, that's not going to be comfy because there's lots about me to change to make me like that. But you know what? It's all good. And it's all things. So let's come on to the last thing. Working together for good. We come to the heart of things, really. What is good? I know a lot of Christians have read this verse and said, well, they take great comfort in it. know that, look, whatever I'm facing, God's going to work it for my good. God's in this. And that is true. But that good is inextricably linked to God's purpose in our lives. If God's purpose is not driving your life, if it's not front and centre, then your version of good and his version of good are going to diverge. And that leads to disappointment or anger. And God doesn't want that for you. God will work all things together. That working together, Paul uses a word, synegeo, in the Greek. It's where we get synergy from, where things come together. And it it really just means working in partnership. That, That things in your life that seemingly are unrelated to one another will actually come and work in partnership. Unlikely things in your life that you don't see as connected, he does, and he brings them together to work in partnership to take you to where you need to go because he can do things with the events of our life that we cannot see when we're going through them. And when we're going through them, if we have this truth in sight, then whatever's going on, we can trust that somehow this thing that I'm facing, God's going to use it in partnership with something else in my life to get me to where I need to go. That's why Paul can say to the saints, consider it pure joy when faced with difficulties. Have you ever struggled with that? exhortation pure joy that's not my version of pure joy (laughs) difficulties and challenges but when we have God's purposes front and center it starts to become that because we get excited about what God is going to do in us and know that he will be with us through it so what does good look like well the best verse I can find is in Mark 10 and uh, sorry Mark chapter 10 verse 18 when Jesus says to the disciples and to those around him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus was not saying that he is not good, just to clear that up. But what he's saying is is that God defines what good is. That's Mark 10, verse 18. In other words, good is measured by God himself. God sets the standard for what good is. He's the only thing that is good. So anything that is like him is good. Anything that is not like him is not good. So therefore when he creates he measures everything against him. It's there to reflect him and to be in conformity with his nature. God separate he said let there be light and then he separated the light from the darkness and for the first time he said it's good. It's good. He was saying, as far as I'm concerned, the light is good. It's like me. It reflects something of my divine nature. And that's where we start to understand what good really means. Good cannot be measured by our opinion. It can't be me- measured by our comfort levels. It can't be measured by the merits that we set on it. Does that therefore mean that God can just do whatever he likes and call it good? Because that really wouldn't be good for us, would it? What does God say good is today? Well, he said it's being like this. Okay, if God the next day said, no, good's not like that anymore, it's like this. It'd be hard to keep up with him, wouldn't it? In other words, good must always be the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the writer says this, that he upholds the universe by the power of his word. He upholds the universe by the power of his word, that the continued existence of all creation is linked to the power of his word. What I believe that means is that it's the integrity of who God is. Is he good for his word, or does he change? If he changes, we're all in trouble, because what is good today may not be what's good for tomorrow. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, if God was like that, the whole of reality would collapse in on itself, because there would be no standard by which everything else is judged. We'd be in the hands of a whimsical being who was treating us, depending on the mood he was in that day. But God is not like that. So therefore, if God is consistently the same, we have to ask ourselves, is what God is like good as far as we're concerned? So in other words, is it good for us? Well, I think we have the answer in the Scripture once again. If you go down to verse 31, so we're still in chapter 8, Paul gives us the answer. Emphatically, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things there's the all things again you know all, all things that happened in your life came from God ultimately yeah. he gave you the stuff you liked and the stuff you didn't but he didn't spare his own son so if you want to answer the question this God who doesn't change is he a nice guy do you need any more proof than the fact he gave up his son for you is there any more proof? Is there anything he could have done bigger than that to demonstrate he is for you and he loves you? That's not rhetorical either. That's a genuine question. Because sometimes we doubt that God is for us and that he loves us. And my question to you is, if you doubt it or have doubted it, tell me anything that he could have done more than that to demonstrate and prove to you his will for you, his benevolence toward you. There's nothing. There's been no greater demonstration of love in all of history than what God did for us. So we know that God is benevolent and we know that he's consistently good and we can put our confidence and our trust in that. That whatever the facts and the circumstances say, I know God is good, I know that no one else is good except him and I know that he doesn't change. So however things seem, I can hang on to that central truth in my life. And furthermore, I know that whatever happens, he will work it together for good as he defines it. And I know that's good now. According to the purpose he has for my life. So anything that is bad for me, that will take me further away from him, that will make me less like him, he will withhold from me. Whether I like it or not. Because my version of good is changing day to day, week to week. Sometimes it's hour by hour, let's be honest. But thankfully, God sees above all of that. And as a loving father, he makes sure that all things are working together for good. Because we've been called according to his purposes. He's a good God. He's a good, good God. Paul says that with him has he not given us all things. With Jesus, but well, you know what? One of those all things are that He's given us. He's made us sons. Yeah. The Bible uses the word "sons," and it means those who inherit. Those who inherit the first portion. We're all sons of God. We're all His children. With Jesus, He made us His sons, as we've just read. He's the firstborn among many brethren. You know the key to understanding our identity, to knowing who I am, is to know that you're a child of God before all things. I'm a servant of the Lord, but I'm not a paid servant. I'm a son who serves in the house. You see, servants come and they go. They stay for as long as they're paid, or they're bound, but a son will serve forever. And that's the difference between sons and servants. We are sons who serve in God's house. Knowing you're a child of God and knowing you're beloved is the key to understanding this scripture, Romans eight twenty-eight. As the spirit of adoption, that's earlier in the chapter, by the way, the context again, as the spirit of adoption in you cries out, a revelation happens that you are a child of God. Because the Spirit says, Abba, Father. And your heart starts to echo the cry so that you know you're a child of God. And you need to know you're a child of God because everything else in this world will tell you that you are not. That he has discarded creation, including you. Where is God? He's right here in my heart. And I am his child. You need to know that you're called that you're called for purpose, that everything in your life matters, from the big stuff to the small stuff, that all of it God will weave together in a tapestry that reflects the beauty of his holiness. You need to know that your life is heading in a direction, that you have a destiny, a heavenly destiny. You know, Paul had got to the point, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, you know, I just forget the stuff that's behind now. The one thing I do is focus on what the prize that he's called me to. I've been called heavenwards. He had this sense that he was being dragged towards the heavenlies. And God had got all these things for him to do, and he was desperately trying to lay hold of all these things that God had got for him to do. And we need to have the same heavenward call on our lives so that really nothing else matters as much, that everything else falls into line behind that. That's the only way, folks, we're going to be all that God has called us to be. It's the only way that we will fulfill our destiny together as God's people. We're going to come back into worship. I'm just going to ask William and the musicians to come back. And as they do, I'm just going to pray. So I would ask you just to close your eyes. Father, we thank you that you have bought us for the ultimate price. Father, we thank you that you've brought us into your kingdom, that you've made us your children, your beloved children. Lord, we thank you that everything in our lives is working toward that purpose of making us like Jesus, so that we reflect him in all his glory and fullness, that he would dwell in us. That we together, as your body, would reflect your divine nature. That, Lord, we would be full of your eternal power. Lord, we pray that our destiny would be the thing that drives our lives day to day, Lord. We pray that you would show us in ever greater measure how we are called, how we are loved, how we are destined, Lord. To see the restoration of all things and to see this land covered in your glory, Lord, as we start to reflect who you are as your wonderful, shining body. Lord Jesus, as we come and sing now, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would receive a fresh revelation in our hearts, Lord, of what this central truth really means. Lord, embed it in our hearts. Let it be a tent peg that's driven into the blessed rock of Christ, that nothing is equal to shaking. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.